You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. If it's Tuesday night, the second of Kislev, this must be Rizcha Dalaisa special edition. Now, I'm not here with my usual person, who I interview, Harav Hagein, the Saratei Rav Yisif Gabriel Bechofer. This is a special edition where I've called in my and my other great close friends, Rabbi Mark Gottlieb of the Tikva Foundation. And the reason why I've called Rabbi Gottlieb is because uh, we have on our Rizcha show uh, discussed Jonathan Sachs' Ptira right after his death. And I, our last program, those of you that listened, heard us speak once again about Rabbi David Feinstein. And I felt that we needed a program, especially, uh, to speak about the great Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Yaakov Zev Sachs. And I've called Rabbi Gottlieb specifically, and he was very gracious for, for answering the call, because I know Rabbi Gottlieb is not only uh, very, uh, he understands Rabbi Sachs's complete writings, someone who has followed him and understands him. Uh, he also uh, wrote recently in the uh, first things, a on the web edition, a article remembering Rabbi Sachs, a very well-written and uh, wonderful piece. So Mark, uh, thanks so much uh, for being with us on this special edition and to speak about something I know that's very close to your heart. Of course, Avramel. It's it's a pleasure to to be on the program with you tonight. And uh, you know, uh, you know, when I think about uh, this article that you've written, and uh, there's so many uh, of the names that you mentioned here, people that not only were close to Rabbi Sachs, but also people that um, that were close to you know, close to your uh, philosophical viewpoint. Um, and uh, I can't help but think. Uh, that Rabbi Sachs, in some way, is sort of like a uh, a model uh, for you as someone who um, uh, had, had accomplished something that I think that you're, in a way, uh, find yourself following in his footsteps. I mean, we all have uh, uh, Rabbonim and, 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 and scholars and thinkers that we sort of feel a, a sense of a kindred spirit with. I get that sense that that's the way you feel about Rabbi Sachs, more than just uh, uh, approaching it uh, merely from a, a scholastic viewpoint. Well, I, I certainly, you know, aspire to to follow in his footsteps. Uh, those are large and, and impressive footsteps indeed. And I think anybody really working in the area of Jewish thought or Jewish theology, engaging the broader world of ideas, of culture, of philosophy, of politics, can't but be inspired by Rabbi Sachs's model. I mean, one small measure of his prominence and, and influence in the world of thought is, is the following. About 10 years ago, a, a volume, a festrif in, in his honor was assembled, and two of the contributors were two of the leading philosophers in the world today. Alistair McIntyre, Scottish philosopher, 
who now resides in South Bend, Indiana, and has a, a an appointment at the ripe old age of 91 at Notre Dame University, the University of Notre Dame, and Charles Taylor, who for many years was at McGill University in Canada. Taylor himself is Canadian. And these two thinkers have literally changed the world of, of modern philosophy, especially in, in the areas of ethics in political philosophy and political thought. And these, these two great philosophers, and I, I, these are philosophers of the first rank. These are not just dabblers or, or people that are popularizers. These are, are some of the leading philosophers in the world today, and they paid tribute to Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs as a, as a partner in this, in this conversation of philosophical theology of religion in the, in the, in the public square, McIntyre and, and Taylor happened to both, you know, be believing and, and observant Catholics. Um, McIntyre, a convert uh, from Marxism in, in, in a way that was certainly his worldview and Taylor uh, just a, a, a thoughtful Catholic as a lifelong um, believer, but that to me is incredible. The, the fact that you have two giants of the world of contemporary analytic and continental philosophy writing in this festive for for Rabbi Sachs, along with people like Professor David Berger and Rabbi Dr. J.J. Uh, um It's remarkable, and and to me that shows the kind of of place and standing that this this rabbi this orthodox thinker and rabbi occupied in the eyes of some true giants of the field now whether we assess rabbi sachs's philosophical legacy on par with people like mcintyre and taylor probably not but that doesn't diminish his massive and singular contribution to the world of thought, especially the translation of Jewish thought, Jewish theology, into the bloodstream of, of contemporary political thought, contemporary ethical thought, contemporary sociology. Um, so it's quite, it, it's quite an impressive legacy. So, so you sort of like um, stole my thunder there, and I think we, we probably knew where I was going, because yes, you know, uh, McIntyre and Taylor, who contributed articles, I guess that was going to be my question. You know, Jonathan Sachs himself, you know, we always have a principal, Achrei Moskadosh, um, after, and it's the, the depth is horrible. I mean, I, I read uh, in some article that he had had cancer before. Yes, uh, he had in his 30s, and then and again, it appeared in his 50s. And then, as we know, finally, sadly, you know, in his early 70s. So uh, I suppose the family was was always aware that that threat, uh, but we in the public it was definitely not was wasn't part of the well known uh, biography uh, of Rabbi. No, he he kept it he kept it very very private. So, um, so quite so, quite impressive in its own way. Yeah, again, and, and that's and and really we could talk about the the type of incredibly public figure he was and the wonderfully private human he was as well. I mean, that's something that I've heard from a number of people and, and it, it's, it's really so beautifully uh, beautiful to hear that. But I guess what I was, was, was trying to get at was that 
yes, him being ripped away is, is, is tragic. And Achrimos Kedoshim, and he deserves it uh, to be extolled and, 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 and to be uh, elevated. But, you know, part of what we do in Rizkha Darais and part of what I, what, I, what I do with you as a friend is sometimes step back and look at things objectively. And, and you sort of answered my, my question here by saying that um, he wasn't uh, a top rank philosopher in that way. Um, in other words, 15, 20 years from now, when people are going to be studying uh, philosophy or studying generally uh, philosophy without necessarily a Jewish bent, um, they aren't necessarily going to be turning to the works of sex to to discover new, insightful points that had never been uh, made before. Or, 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 or you're not going to put him with uh, the men that you said, or even people that I'm more familiar with, like Leo Strauss, or other people like that. Um, but you seem to say very strongly that we should uh, definitely, uh, not only, uh, we should celebrate and try to emulate this other aspect of what he was able to do. Um, again, I, I th- I'm going to leave it the emulating for you to try to do things like that. But, but the celebration is that it isn't one of these forced um, monkey wrenching of, you know, you see what Judaism has to say towards this. Um, I know you mentioned Heschel. Uh, in in your um, in your article, right? I think you yes. uh, you, you begin Heschel as a public intellectual, right? As a public intellectual, but yes. I but I actually believe Heschel Heschel's fusion isn't as <laughs> seamless as, as as Rabbi Sachs. I mean Heschel and the Prophets and some of his other works, although he does reference uh, a, a number of secular ideas. Heschel, I don't believe swam in that world at all, right? Well. I think that's an interesting observation. I think Heschel strongly saw the prophetic spirit of Judaism at deep, deep odds, um, at deep loggerheads with contemporary culture. And while that is certainly one dimension of, of Rabbi Sachs's thinking, there's no question that Rabbi Sachs portrays himself and portrays Judaism as a kind of countercultural intellectual force uh, that really takes on the pieties of, of the contemporary world, whether it's consumerism or capitalism or relativism. And, you know, Judaism presents an, a counter narrative or an alternative, you know, in many ways, oh, oh, Shabbos, you know, the, the Shiva was coming to an end. It, it just ended really. And I, I was just, struck by how potent the providence was that we were reading about Avram Avinu's Petira and the way that the collective consciousness of, of the Jewish people immediately associates the Mida of Chesed with Avram Avinu. But the Rambam, as you know, in Hilchas Avodas Kachavim, has a much more intellectualized portrait of, of Avram. Avram Avinu as this intellectual iconoclast, as this philosopher, uh, you know, in the wake of uh, a natural history of Avodah Avram becomes the Eitan Gadol, you know, this this giant of a, of a thinker. And I, I really did see Rabbi Sachs in in that in that image of of someone who who comes from that culture, comes from the heart of of English Jewry, but a, a very assimilated 
English Jewry. He really doesn't get a, a deep Jewish education until his 20s. Um, this life-altering trip to the United States where he meets Lubavitcher Rebbe, Zuchusa Yagen Aleinu, and the Rav Zatzal. Uh, these were life, you know, altering, totally transformative um, encounters. But from the belly of English Jewry and academia, Cambridge, Gonville and Keys, and these Tony prep schools that he went to in Finchley, this Christ's College in Finchley, very nice Jewish name. Um, you know, he he wrote he took the banner of of, of tradition, of orthodoxy, of the of biblical ethics, and engaged both the the new atheists, uh, the neoliberals, um, you know, alt-right, in some sense, identity politics. And he had a coherent worldview that was able to both combat, but ultimately show the the affinities between Judaism and the West. And I think Heschel, Heschel was always trying to, to show the points of contrast. I think this is somewhat of the temperament of Rabbi Sachs, who really in some ways loved the fact that he was a lord. <laughs> he 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 really and I think Rabbi Rosenblatt said it so beautifully at the at the Hespedim that, that you offered in the Yeshiva of Newark the podcast. the podcast. Yeah, that that essentially, you know, this was a great um demonstration of of the ability for a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi to to make it, you know, Norman Podhartz's famous book, Making It, you know, that, that the Jew in England could make it, which was much harder in, for the Jew in England to make it than the Jew in America to make. And he did. And he, he was more influential, arguably, than the Archbishop of Canterbury, well, uh, both in uh, Downing Street and in, in, in Buckingham Palace. So, you know, I, think, I think there's a lot to say for, for his ability to maintain that standing as a public intellectual of the highest order without being necessarily the most original or the most creative. I do think the two, the two legacies philosophically and theologically that, that he left us are his commentary on Chumash and the Siddur and the Machzer and the Haggadah on the one hand. And I think the dignity of difference, which is his most daring book of theology and it might in fact be his his most lasting contribution and i think that could be read in in 50 or 100 years from now hmm. I, I did download it yesterday and i have the whole uh, book as a pdf uh and i was planning and prepping in my conversation with him tonight uh to try to have a lot that this man wrote you know nearly 40 books <laughs> right so right. You, you have a lot of preparation rub of ramel to yeah, well, that, to be thorough yeah well i i i, I clearly so you don't have to be thorough well again i'm I'm relying on you in some way but i just didn't want to sound like i was uh completely uh in his writings That's i have sure. to tell you I, I do want to tell you though that i think there is um, a little bit of um uh a point about uh, his, his his literary legacy in terms of you know uh, covenant conversation, which yes. are, are are wonderful essays. I wouldn't call that a commentary on Fumishta. And I know he has another one um, uh, uh, about the about leadership, where he takes yes. the leadership. 
he, he was working actually on a, on a more traditional commentary, right? Which which they say is still going to come out. Which the, yeah, the yeah. Are. It's true that these you know covenant conversation and the ethics and 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 lessons in leadership and essays and ethics they're not technically in the form of commentary in in a traditional sense, but they 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 serve as as deep glosses on the parsha and. Um, I think they will be read because they're both edifying. They're they're beautifully written as everything he wrote, but they they bring the parsha to a kind of engagement with people that are living in the modern world and thinking along the lines of modern thought, not deeply philosophically always, but just in the currents and the culture. And it, it it's machshiv that world. But it elevates that world, and it also, in some sense, for these, for for the kind of person that is in that world, it also shows how relevant the Torah remains, um, which sometimes we forget. Sometimes the temptation to to parochialize and to ghettoize our own thinking, not just our own living, um, is is I think quite a temptation for the modern Orthodox and the and the more yeshiva Haredi. You know, community, and I think his his works on Chumash have a way of of combating that, of of showing that there is a conversation to be had. Yeah, with no question about it. I think that they they will definitely be popular, and I think as as you say, uh, he was able, uh, you know, sort of like um, you know when they were talking about you know in television lingo, they try to speak about w- which is going to be the program. It's going to break through that everybody is going to be able to uh, be part of, even though it's, it has a certain particularism. And I think about the Cosby show, which, uh, right. which, which was, which was, again, it's such a, a crossover, crossover, a crossover hit. Uh, yes. The fact is, is that, you know, uh, it's a very unfortunate what happened. Not unfortunate. It's, it's terrible, ugly and criminal, but it had that, and Bill Cosby not had that, um, his past come yeah. back to him. I think he would be lauded as creating something that I think was a, a source for healing even. Uh, and it could even be looked at. I think in the same way, you'll pardon the connection, but I think in the same way, uh, covenant conversation could be read, you're right, even by Yeshiva Shabbat who could say, you know what, I don't mind hearing about Beethoven and Mozart and comparing them to the different shittas and halacha. Uh, you know, he was able, because of his careful language and because of the way he um, made sure not to um, push the limits to the point that people smelled something heretical, he was able, I think, to create a big umbrella uh, that many people surprisingly loved and were part of. Even people who were dyed in the wool machines uh, loved him. I, mean, yeah. I, I spoke to my... My close friend, Eitan Kobri, who you know is the uh, one of the sure. main writers for Mishpacha. So it was really uh, a, a tremendous appreciation. And even, I'll say it even further, just to show you how that's true, both Mishpacha and Ami, who won't have women, who, when, when Eitan Hankin dies, have a hard time talking about his father in any positive way, who can't mention Ramesha Tenler. This is risk of the rice, by the way. So you have to realize I have to do this type of stuff. Even they can't even mention they can't even mention Mishnah and say Shlita, right, or anything like that. Right. But they can give Jonathan Sachs 
a spread. They can give him a blurb on the front cover. He's not going to push Rabbi Feinstein off the front cover, but there's no. going to be uh, a special section. There's going to be a sense. And, and the fact that Rabbi Sachs was able to do that, he was yeah. he I was able, he... like the Cosby Show, That it's a, it was a number one <laughs> program right. all across the board. That was an incredible... Well, I'll, forgive, I'll, I'll forgive the Cosby Show analogy. I was never a big Cosby Show fan. Pre... pre uh, crisis or pre-scandal, but um, I, I think it's a good comparison because even the more yeshivish community somehow felt that this man was a kiddush shem shemaim. You know, sure. that, that they felt that this man had access to the the hallways and corridors of power and that he represented Klal Yisrael in a dignified, um, authoritative for his, you know, domain of expertise and interest uh he he represented us so beautifully and and so nobly and so i think that was felt you know intuitively even in in quarters that you know wouldn't read all his books or wouldn't you know appreciate every reference he made to classical literature or philosophy or sociology or the new atheists but they sensed that this was a, a, a man that that represented Klal Yisrael and Yadus in an honorable and a noble way, and I think that that certainly shows. I mean, we obviously, I think it's not a small irony that the book that is most daring and original, The Dignity of Difference, is the book that you know ensconced Rabbi Sachs in in the most sort of trouble uh, from a public affairs or public policy point of view. Um, well, why, don't, why, don't we, why don't we review that a little bit? Uh, sure, sure. Uh, again, I, 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 you, know, you, can, you can fill in what I'm maybe saying improperly here, but I think what, uh, what happened, what he writes, I'm not sure where it is in the book, but I know that he talks about uh, the importance of recognizing that God revealed, that's what he wrote in the first edition, that God revealed himself to the to the Jews, of course, to the Torah, but he also revealed himself to Christianity and to Islam. And it was important for all of us to know that God speaks differently or a, a similar message to different religions. And I think it was that, those statements that got him in trouble, right? Yeah. That was the one. Yeah, those, those statements, the statement that that no religion has a monopoly on the truth, which was the most pointed and, and sharp formulation of, of this larger theory that Kaddish Baruch Hu, through his plenitude, through the, the goodness of the Bria and the goodness that is a Kaddish Baruch Hu, the expresses, manifests his being, his reality, his plenitude, his fullness in ways that don't exhaust any one particular faith or one particular community, one particular tradition, one particular people. And and so no one people or no one religion could possibly have a monopoly on the truth. If, if the truth is infinite, if the Kaddish Baruch Hu is infinite, uh, or see, the Kaddish Baruch Hu is infinite, the question of is his truth infinite, that's another sort of, that's another instantiation and it's another claim that Rabbi Sachs makes that you might distinguish between you know the infinity of a Kaddish Baruch Hu and 
the infinity of truth. Maybe truth is is clothed in some hishtalshalus that is more limited, um, Torah, Knesset Yisrael. But these were the pardon. Yeah, I mean, what it, what it, I, you can see why these statements, although they definitely, uh, in a Mendelssohnian way, uh, indicate uh, a sense of brotherhood. I mean, Mendelssohn. I, I think it's actually much deeper than Mendelssohn. I, I, I've, I've seen, you know, to me, this these passages in the Dignity of Difference touch on on you know the deepest truths of, of metaphysics and and philosophy, and and I, you know, I am sympathetic to to the original edition. Uh, and I understand why it was changed, and I'm not, I, I'm not naive enough to think that for the purpose of, you know, Klal Yisrael's Shalom Bias, that, that some of these um, fine tuning or wordsmithing on the margins um, weren't, you know, okay. Uh, it was funny the other day, Rav Ramel, you were telling me over a beautiful vort from Rav Yashov about the zikna that, that Avram Avinu instantiated in the world. And I, I, I didn't remember it at the time, but I, I've remembered since how, how vehemently opposed Gravel Yashav was to, to the dignity of difference and, and how, how many of the Askanim, whether he read the original version or was just repeated to him, others who clearly read it, you know, our friend Jonathan Rosenblum was not, was not a big fan of, of the dignity of difference or certainly had his, his, his critiques. But um, in some ways, Rabbi Sachs is resuscitating a, a very unique cheetah that emerged probably a das yachid, but who knows how, how these theories are received. Maybe, you know, Rav Cook on some level um, could have been an adherent to this, but I don't want to speculate too much. But I do know that very uh, minor figure, Natanel um, Ben Al-Fayami, uh, who was a Yemenite Rav in the 12th century, had a very similar position of kind of a proto... Um, sure, the Ghana Sikhalim. The Ghana Sikhalim, sure. Exactly, the Ghana Sikhalim. The Ghana Sikhalim, I have the safe. That is sort of like... Something very, very similar. Uh, Alan Brill, in his book, on Judaism and other religions, um, models of understanding has a small section on uh, Al Fayumi as as a as a representative of a universalist approach to to theology and and truth and and God. And there are definitely echoes of of that position in Rabbi Sachs's book. Um, and it's interesting you talk about how we uh, how we walked back uh, the statements. I know that. Um, on one level, he said that he had perhaps overstated something, but uh, he sort of had to tap dance to all the the, the critics. To some, he said, well, there, there's truth, but people have to be ready to hear the truth. I know that he quipped uh, on an interview uh, with NPR uh, that, um, that, you know, it's, a, it's <laughs> when you get branded a heretic, uh, it's, it's almost like an honorary doctorate uh, for <laughs> in some circles. He had, he had that sense of humor, definitely. So pretty little twist of you know Bon Mott, James Bondian Lahavdil. We Sean Connery is passing. You know, yes, I know. We mentioned them actually on one of our Rishon shows. I was in the middle of talking to Rabbi Bechaper about something completely. 
and then he starts mentioning to me uh Sean Connery because it came up on his news feed. So I, yeah. if you, I, anybody who listens to this. Sean Connery was an O.A. Yisrael in many ways, but that's for another time, perhaps. Who, who Sean Connery was. Sean Connery, I mean, Sean Connery had, I think, a complicated relationship to, to, with some Jews. He had a lot of producers and a lot of Hollywood people were Jewish, of course. And, and he, he was he, a, he had his own way of doing things. He was pretty, you know. Maverick. Like, he was a maverick in many ways. But, but he did go to Israel in 1967, the same year that Rabbi Sachs, from England went to to America. Uh, Sean Connery, a Scotsman, went to Eretz Yisrael. There's a famous picture with him in a in a aircraft um in a aircraft bunker or aircraft um carrier not a carrier but a a, a barrack. Um, there's no question that Sean Connery would uh, would would align himself with a tough Sabra who was willing to yes, uh, yes. paratroop into the yes. enemy lines and cut a couple yes. of throats. Yeah, yeah. Sean Connery himself probably, you know, would like to do that as Zardos. You know what I, I, I what I, what I was thinking also. Uh, we mentioned about '67 when he came to America. In your article, Mark, you mentioned about the influence of the Lavatcher Rebbe, and and I think that uh, we were talking before uh, we started recording that that there was if there was one element in your article that you would have added, you would have talked more about uh, the, the, the influence that you really see from the Lubavitcher Rebbe on, yeah. uh, on yeah. uh, Jonathan Sachs. Why don't you talk us a little bit about that? Sure. Well? well, there's this wonderful quote that Rabbi Sachs has that when he came to the United States in 67 and he met these two great titans of, of theology and Judaism, that the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe taught him or reminded him what it means to be a leader and the Rav Zatzal reminded him what it means to be a thinker. And I, I really, I do see resonances in Rabbi Sachs's theology of a kind of Lubavitch Chabad focus on the perfectibility of man and nature, um, something that the Rav was more skeptical and, and more dialectic, of course, as we know. Um, but Rabbi Sachs really believes that man can make the world not just better, but we can heal a fractured world, that we can live in, in a politics of hope, that we could take the radical spirit of Judaism then and the radical spirit of Judaism now and change the world. That kind of optimism, that kind of sense of the perfectibility of man and nature and world is something I think he got from the Rebbe. I think it got from Chabad and, and the theology of Chabad, and most especially in the person of, of the Lubavitcher Rebbe himself, the sense that you can always do more, you could always improve things. In in his daughter Gila's very moving Espade, she said that my father never believed there was an unsolvable problem, that there was no problem that was too great to solve. And she even quips that he thought perhaps we could solve the problem of global anti-Semitism as the, the water kettle was burning or boiling. Um, while that is obviously a joke, the, the spirit and the sentiment of that, of, that, of that observation is really very true, that he did not think that the Rav's dialectic of Adam 1 and Adam 2 was interminable. He did believe that there was a Hegelian third term of synthesis 
Rabbi Sachs was much more of a synthetic thinker. Um, while adopting the dialectic, he adopts the Hegelian dialectic that has its third term or its third motion in the synthesis. And I think that's partially his own philosophical temperament, and that's partially the influence of, of the Rebbe and the sense of we can do it. We can, we can really make it a place of, of God awareness, God consciousness, and, and we can make a, a heaven here on earth. That's not something that the Rav would really say. He would say that there's this tension that runs down the, the spine of reality and the tension that, that is in the bosom of man's heart and soul and that we can't reconcile these things. Rabbi Sachs thought we could. I would say, again, you know, now you're a little bit in my area. Um, uh, I would say one of the reasons why the Rav didn't think that way, because ultimately the Rav was a Lamdan. Ultimately the Rav was steeped in the halachic world that basically balances these type of um, dichotomies and realizes that just like halacha doesn't ever create a fusion that's nice and path and clean, but rather operates with, you know, 150 ways to be matir or sheretz. I think that's part of the reason why the Rav kept that sort of uh, aspect going. Whereas the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, even though he was a master of Shas, and you, you can look at any Lakute Sichas Mimer and be blown away by his profundity as their edition, he still was pushed by the Kabbalistic ideal the, uh, of, of, of Ilum Atikun. Yeah, as much a disposition as it is a, a cognitive state. Or a, There's a relationship there between the cognitive and the dispositional that I think in the Rub's case, for the reasons that you're suggesting, and, and I think his, his sense of a kind of of a reality or, or a way that he inhabited the world where right. he was much less optimistic and much more and much more torn and much more dialectical. Um, I think that has halachic sources and I think it has dispositional and philosophical sources even. You know, we know Kierkegaard is a source and um, I don't think it's just a patina or an add-on to what he believed you know, independently of that, but it is one of several, you know, dispositions, intellectual and otherwise, that that point in that direction. Well, as he, you know, as he says in the Shalocha, his criticism of Chabad, his criticism of yeah. of Chassidus in general. I mean, there, there you have the Rebbe, who, of course, is uh, you know is, is, saw himself as the culmination of of sure. all Hasidic thought, including Chabad. And in that case, I think Jonathan Sachs would have had an aversion to the total picture of what the Rebbe wanted. In other words, if he could really crawl into the Rebbe's mind and see not just the, the aspect of fixing the world and, and that optimism, but that it comes specifically through uh, this, the acute messianism and the idea of Chachmas Hasod or Hasidus or Kabbalah. Yeah, though, Rebbe Sachs was not a mystic, but... I think, and, but also, but but also, Mark. Let me just make this point. But also, the uh, the, the specific Yiddish aspect of it, the the fact that it was built on this. In other words, we all daven for Shoshana and Rabbi Sachs, um, as you, as is evidenced in the Machzor, and uh, which I which I want to say is really, I, I feel the Machzorim are are really much to me. Uh, the introductions to the Machzorim, to me, yes, are, 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 are something which I think is a, really a step above 
even where he was writing uh, in Covenant Conversation, some of the other things. But definitely Rabbi Sachs had a tremendous tefis about what Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur were supposed to be. And the tefillah of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur about Malchus uh, Shlema and Tzadikim Yeruvi Yismachu, the clear indication, the way Chabad and most Pashtonim would look at it, is of course about the hegemony of, of, of Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people being the ultimate partners with God uh, and, 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 and bonding. And everyone, of course, is, is, is under uh, the influence, but it's all really centered with the Hiskalis of Molihar Dea through the power of the specific Torah that we have. And in that case, I, I, I think if you're right, and I think you are, that Rabbi Sachs, even though he walked back the stuff that he wrote in Dignity of Difference, in his mind, he was still back there, and maybe even till he died. In that way, I think he would have differed from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Lubavitcher Rebbe ultimately is about a, 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 the Jewish control of the world, the Torah control of the world, uh, the, right? A, a, a galvanizing of what we have now and creating this new Welt. I, I don't know if Rabbi Sachs would. would yeah, I, I think that Rabbi Sachs believed that the the thought of Judaism, as evident in Tanakh and in Chazal, were the keys to bringing about the reconciliation of opposites, whether that's in politics or in sociology or in science. And I, I think he did view Judaism as as a kind of conduit towards a more perfect world and a, and a redemption in, in the here and now. Um, I don't think we're disagreeing. I think he didn't see it as, as mystical, you know, tikkun in the sense of, of, a, of a more um, praxis-oriented and, and, you know, contemplative Jewish parochial, you know, part, you know particularism that's not giving back to the universal. That would that's where precisely he would say that the ideas of Judaism can help overcome the schisms of modernity between you know but, Judaism, but, but higher, think, between body and soul, uh, between individual and community, individual and society. Those those schisms, those those tensions. I think he believed that Judaism had the answer to. To navigate those things in a much more healthy, in a much more edifying way, and that 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 was the beginnings of a redemption. He would see it, I think, more even though Lubavitch has its own version of what the Rambam means. I think the simple understanding of the Rambam and Hilchas Malochim about how the Messianic era uh, is ushered in, I think, is much more in line with Rabbi Sachs' uh, felt could happen, um, as opposed to this. Um, eschatologic, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, sort of apocalyptic uh, yeah. view of things. I think he, I don't think he, there's no evidence that he believed that's what we were no. praying for. No, agreed. But I, again, to me, it's it's chiefly the disposition of optimism, this sort of yes, mechanism right. in politics, you know, to call your book about Judaism radical then, radical now. Of course, in America, they renamed it because they didn't want to scare know all the conservative readership that would be maybe put off by radical then radical now and they named it a scroll in the uh, a letter in the scroll which is a much more parv kind of milka toast uh, <laughs> title but uh you know if you believe that radicalism is at the heart of judaism then you're saying something that is 
apocalyptic in some way or messianic at least. Right. Well, Hasidus is definitely a, a very radical movement. And, and, yeah. and yet, um, well, I guess I'm trying to say, well, also, you know, I, I just wanted before I make this point, there was a Lubavitch, uh, um, a Rav, I forgot who it was in England, a Shochet, uh, one of the... Emmanuel yeah, Shochet. His nephew, I think it was. His, uh-huh. One of his one of his relatives uh, was mentioning how, I believe it was one of his relatives, that Rabbi Sachs had actually argued for him. Rabbi Sachs had actually, there had been some uh, uh, people with, uh, in the United Synagogues that didn't want him to become uh, one of the rabbis there. And Rabbi Sachs came to the forefront to defend him. Uh, and, and, and I think that really uh, aligns with what you're saying about Rabbi Sachs's affinity to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Although, I, I don't know if the Rabbi Sachs ever spoke out, uh, Mark, uh, against Lubavitch messianism, especially after the Lubavitcher Rebbe's death. I don't think there was anything that... No, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I don't recall if he did. It wouldn't be shocking if he did, but he may, out of deference to the movement and to the Rebbe, he may have remained silent. I, I, I just don't remember. And you, you do hear this, you know, when we talk about his role as a, um, uh, as a, uh, as a thinker, you do hear this in the, in the obituary in Haaretz after his death, where what, you know, it, it sort of raised the fact that he was in the middle and he didn't take strong stances and that he had, um, um, uh, you know, that, that there, people were, uh, people were unhappy with him in some ways. Although now, of course, we, we mourn his loss, uh, but there were people in his lifetime who thought that he could have been stronger in ways, even different than there what you were saying. People, you know what? You know, if if the if everybody loves the rub, then then that's not. If, then you're not. Then you're not a man. If nobody loves the rub, then you're not a rub. You know, it's it's uh, it's hard to be the chief rabbi of anything. Um, but I so. think, he, and he also saw himself again, not only just the chief rabbi of, of, of his commonwealth, but also in terms of what he needed his books to be and what he wanted to get that type of type of acceptance. Uh, and and yeah, there, I, think was, I think I think that that was a part of his personality and, and profile. I think he 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 could take stances, but he he liked to be liked um, and and respected and. Uh, I think it's an interesting. I, I I don't have many personal stories, and and I'm always reluctant to to make too much out of you know the speculation after one encounter. But having spoken to some you know other other people that knew Rabbi Sachs much more personally than I do, I I think it's it's safe to say that he was more comfortable in his public persona than in in a private persona. Um, I think he says it in his new book, in the last book that he wrote, Morality, that that his wife, Lady Elaine, was the the model of of contentment and and joy and radiated joy, and he was the opposite. He was uh, he was, but he says it very cleverly that he was getting a graduate degree in angst or uh, you know self doubt or um, uncertainty, anxiety, and I. I could see that. I, I think he was much more comfortable on the stage um, giving a brilliant oration, which is nobody, the Amenu, that could do what he did um, in terms of just pure oratory. Uh, did you want to share some of that personal meeting that you had with him? No, no, the personal meeting, it was just that I, I, I had an opportunity when I was living in Boston um, to meet with him. He had 
come to Boston. He spoke at the Maimonides School where I was working at the time. And he gave this brilliant lecture, of course, to the community. And then we retired to the conference room on the second floor where the Rabbi Salvagic Institute was housed. And I just, I, I remember feeling like this was a different person. This, like, the, the, public the public figure felt like he was talking right to you. The public figure, you felt like when he was giving this brilliant oration, this lecture, that he was right in front of you, responding to your needs, responding to what you wanted. And when he was in smaller quarters, just with you and maybe a handful of other people answering questions, it didn't feel that that same sense of intimacy. It didn't feel that same sense of responsivity. It felt like he wasn't always answering your question. Um, that it was sort of like what he thought your question was or what he wanted your question to be, um, to say something very deep and profound. But that doesn't always feel right. Um, so it was just an interesting encounter. Maybe it was just a singular encounter. Maybe it was simply a, a, a blip and it's not at all representative of of how Rabbi Sachs engaged with people. I've heard wonderful stories of how how much of a mentor he was to younger rabbis and and that he he enjoyed spending time with with younger um rabbinical students and young rabbis in the field. Um so, you know, that's obviously impressive and and that is a counterpoint to to the story that I'm remembering. But I'm remembering my experience, and, <laughs> right. and that that's that's certainly made a roshame on me. Um, but it doesn't it, it doesn't take away from his brilliance as a public intellectual of the first rank in terms of Judaism in the public square. one of the things and I, I I appreciate what you're saying, and I I can imagine that. Um, you know, getting him, especially Mark, your affinity and your love for him, and then getting him in a private sense, and then it wasn't exactly what you were expecting. That was, I'm sure it... it, 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 it I think that's a good life lesson in general, just to not project your own, be careful about projecting your own sensibilities or your own affinities or your own, you know, portrait of reality onto the people that you admire, because... It's easy to be disappointed, but you have to then overcome yourself and just think about what this man did for Kal Yisrael and and what he did for the world of of thought of for the secular world from a religious point of view, and and those are the powerful contributions. Yeah, I, I guess I guess you know it's interesting what you're saying, and I want to I want to I want to wrap this up, but it's interesting when you talk about Mark, your your meeting with Jonathan Sachs, and I think about the meetings that I've had with sort of heroes of mine. Uh, when I spoke with Chaim Salvechik after one of his lectures, um, when I got a chance to speak to uh, Schneer Lyman um, uh, privately, when I got a chance uh, to, sp and, and, and others, Rob Herschler and others that, uh, that I always respected them and admired them and, and really saw them as in a way uh, models of things that I wanted to be able to do. And then when I did get a chance to speak to more than Novomitsky Rebbe and others, um, uh, what I found that I was able to do was just to, you know, just speak and learning. And 
when we were able to do that, I think there was a certain commonality. Uh, right. Obviously, I wasn't on their level, but you know, again, even when I spoke to Chaim Salvatric about uh, one of the Rishonim that he wasn't that familiar with, but 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 I wanted to contrast the Meiri to Rav David Akochavi. We were just going back and forth, and, and again, he brought me uh, into it, and I and, and I, I felt so enriched by, even though I knew that I was just a, a hanger on, so to speak, but I felt that I was at the table with them uh, together, and I think that that was a. Uh, it's always great when you're able uh, to do that. Um, it's not just an ego boost. It also really, you know, allows you to be wrapped in and 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 be connected in such a way. And I think that was something that um, that uh, you know we talked about the Hespit. I think that's something Rabbi David Feinstein was always able uh, to, to 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 manage. And you're right, being a public intellectual of his of his stature maybe made it difficult to even speak to others uh, who weren't necessarily. Uh, uh, you know exactly where he was holding. I, I want to ask you one thing that I, I, I threw out of Bechopper, uh the other week, which was that it would have been that had he, of course, the main thing is he should have lived. But if he would have come to the United States uh, and there was talk about him uh, coming to YU as either the Mashkiach or the president or something like that, uh, there was some, I know you know about this, right? There was some uh, discussion about that, talk, but I, I don't know how serious the conversation was. And, and, and I say this, and again, I say this because in my uh, connection to English uh, Orthodoxy through Deershu that I worked for, I would keep on hearing, "Oh, we like Rabbi Sachs, but he really doesn't have an audience here with us." Right. Because basically, what was going on, and it's, 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 everybody knows this, that the, the, the most thriving community in England from Kaidwise is the Haredish Shaksidish community which is right. growing and expanding. And, and although they had a decent relationship with Rabbi Sachs, they didn't really hear his voice talking to them. Yeah. And, I, and I really felt that, that he could have, again, had God given him those years, it, it, would, have been, it would have been great to have him here in, 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 as, 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 as a leader in modern orthodoxy or just general orthodoxy here in the United States. And I think he could have done a lot to collapse a lot of the divisions that we see that sometimes um, I really think he could have been a, a co-leasing voice that, 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 that really could have helped quite a bit. I don't know. Uh, what do you, th- again, obviously the speculation is empty because he's gone. What do you think? Have, I can't see how he would not have been a very um, positive force for, for Kal Yisrael, especially the modern Orthodox and the, let's say the, the yeshiv, the, you know, left-wing yeshivish or more enlightened yeshivish. We are a door yesomim. I mean, we really, you know, since Rav Lichtenstein was nifter, you know, the rub is already 20, 27 years. Um, we're mamish a door yesomim. Rabbi Lamb, who, you know, not in, in, of Rabbi Lichtenstein and, and the rub's caliber, but a giant of, of communal leadership, a giant of of, of homiletics and Jewish thought, um, a great man. We are a bereft orphan generation, and Rabbi Sachs would have been a, a shot in the arm of, of great energy. Of I was reading a beautiful tribute that my friend Stu Halpern, who's uh, the advisor to the provost at Yeshiva University and, and the associate director of, of the Strauss Center, he, he, in the Jewish link, uh, 
which I don't know if you if you get in Passaic or Elizabeth. Yeah, they call it the new they call it the New Jersey Jewish link here, and they over there. They... So there's a really sweet article that Stu wrote for the the Shiva for Rabbi Sachs, where he begins with Rabbi Sachs standing on a chair, leading Zmiros at a Shalashudis in Avat Torah, the big modern Orthodox shul in, in Englewood. And just that image alone was such a beautiful, inspiring image. Rabbi Sachs, this great man of, of intellect, Cambridge, Oxford, uh, you know, rubbing rubbing elbows and shoulders with Charles Taylor and Alistair McIntyre. We're going to end where we began. He was leading Zmiros on a chair with hundreds of people. That's a powerful image. That's a powerful, inspiring, beautiful image. If he could have done that, you know, a few times uh, a year uh, in different shuls at Yeshiva University, he could have inspired another generation. Who Who's going to inspire? I mean, you have people like Rabbi Rosenzweig and Rabbi Tversky, and they're, you know, Rabbi Willig, they're great, great Kedole Torah and, and great Arbitze Torah, great Rosh Yeshiva. But for a broader audience that needs a language and a signon that can be inside and outside, can speak the language of the base medrash and the language of the library and and the intellectual public square. We're not going to see another like Rabbi Sachs, I'm afraid, for for who knows how long. Maybe maybe never. And that sounds so gloomy and, and so dire, but just think of the kind of cast of mind where that person has to come from. Um, so that would have been a great, a great, a great thing, I think. Well, and, and maybe let's just end on this, that through these um, tributes and, and, and speaking, maybe we could resuscitate in some way um, that spirit, although the persona would be, is, is missing, but uh, perhaps these type of things can, can, can galvanize us. Uh, only towards uh, yes, filling yes. that vacuum. Yeah, and he left us a lot of books. There are a lot of books and a lot of uh, tapes and a lot of videos. There are lots of things on YouTube, uh, lots of very short little clips from the office of the chief rabbi that have the cartoon, the you know, the doodling. That sure. As he's lecturing, you've got the doodles going. It's it's clever. It's it's catchy. So Who knows? Yes, so definitely we'll we'll be out there. So, Mark, thanks a lot for giving us uh, this extended version here of Rizcha Daraisa. Not too much Rizichas here between us, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> That's okay, Abraimo. <laughs> <laughs> only on the special edition. Take care, Mark. In terms of, it wasn't vis-a-vis, you know, you versus me, but it was Rizicha of, you know, the collective uh, energy bubbling, you know, bubbling forward. All right. Take care, Mark. We'll catch you a different time. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.